Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of the Pop-A-Doodle-Opolis Pop Mag Smash Hits and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Gavin Hogg, and here he is with birds and all that painted all over his face in this brave new world. It's my pop podcast pal, Simon. Hello there. How you doing, Si? I'm all right. I'm, gl- I'm glad you like the, uh, the the makeup job. It took me ages to get all the detail right. Yeah. You can manage to get it off all right. Do you need some small figure or a, a wet wipe? Yeah, well, I've, I've got a pressure washer in the shed. Well, so, you're you know. going to need it, my friend. <laughs> if, it, if it comes to it. I don't think you should have done it with Sharpies. Anyway, before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Si, who's been a rummaging in the mother's purses and buying us a coffee? Well, quite a few people on this Ooh. occasion. There's a large queue formed at the uh, the coffee shop or the coffee kiosk at the uh, at the carousel. Um, Paul D. Jones, thank you to you. He says, cheers, fellas. Another immensely enjoyable episode. Been an avid listener to the pod for a while now. A couple of coffees are long overdue, so thanks, Paul. Uh, Reese Jones, he says, thanks for all the entertainment. Well, no, thank you, Reese. Final Obsessive says, loving the podcast. Keep up the gid work. Get it? Oh, very uh, good. good. We see what you did yeah it's kind of like a new new zealand uh accent that, that thing going on there uh rachel gallantly former rider on the uh the, the carousel um after all these episodes you're still not down the dumper keep up the good work pop kids so it's a matter of opinion and, and uh perspective and things isn't it? um ricardo autopan says stay hydrated uh love the julian henry episode confirmed some of my theories and i learned some stuff despite having been through the major labels myself hashtag it's a shit business. <laughs> um, Alex, yeah, if, if you missed the last episode with Julian, he did give us a, a rather fascinating peek behind the pop curtain. And Alex says, don't forget to put muchos chock sprinkles on top to avoid putting sugar in. Fool and tickle your taste buds simultaneously. What a devious person he is. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, and one last, well, uh, previous rider on the carousel as well, Patricia Caliscan. She says, hot brew for the most giddy of pop carousels. Well, thank you, Paddy. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for your coffees and whatnot. Uh, yeah, and if, you know, it's always greatly appreciated. It really is. Yeah, thanks, everyone. That's really kind of you. God bless every last one of you. And if you want to support us like those lovely people have done, uh, you can do the same. It's very simple. And it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like, every hour on the hour. It's up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. I'll give you that one more time. That's ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. And chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. And also, thanks to everyone who's been in touch on the socials. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you can find us on all those. We're not doing TikTok. What's all that about, eh? But it's always good to hear from you on the uh, traditional social media platforms. And uh, don't forget, you can leave us a review on your podcast app. or Click the five stars. It helps spread the word. Indeed. Always appreciated. And I just want to say... uh... We've had lots of lovely feedback, as I was saying about the last episode with uh, Nana Cherry on the front cover. Uh, Ricardo Autobahn, who'd given us a coffee earlier on, uh, made the very, what I thought was an astute point in a tweet where he said, 30 years on and still nobody has worked out the point of then Jericho. I thought it was a very good point well made. <laughs> We're still, decades later, you know, years down the line, still no closer to finding out what the nub of that mystery is but uh, maybe one day some historians will work it out for us but it's one of the great pop conundrums <laughs> it is what why then jericho why <laughs> anyway sigh over to you what is occurring in the land of the carousel 
Well, it would appear that the land of the carousel has come to the attention of a rather zealous health and safety type from the local council. He's been here the last few days, poking his nose into all the various amusement attractions on offer. Kid Creole's Coconut Shy, the Fun Boy 3's Tunnel of Love, Madness's House of Fun. And he was quite vocal in his disapproval of the Stray Cats Manning of the Runaway Waltzer. His conclusion? If we don't step up the H&S with some clear messaging, he's going to shut it down. Just as we're all beginning to despair, we hear a familiar voice clearly ringing like the bell on Buster Blood Vessel's High Striker. She reckons she's a dab hand at lending her voice to such messages like, don't touch that red button, and stop playing with it or it'll fall off. <laughs> and most famously, mind the gap. On that London Underground thingy. For the owner of that voice is none other than multi-platform polymath Emma Clark, voiceover, <laughs> writer, composer, podcaster, and today our saviour. <laughs> Stick that health and safety man. Emma, welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a pleasure to, to have you here. Now, before uh, you know any of this shenanigan can start, uh, I mean, you've got to choose a horse to ride on on the carousel. Oh. So, yeah, what would be your your preferred method of transport on the carousel? All the horses that you see before you. Well, obviously, it's going to be a horse. Yes, obviously, obviously. Um, you know, there's a carousel at Tatton Park, or at least there used to be, and the kids used to climb on one, and I think it was called Raphael, <laughs> the one Ooh. that the kids particularly liked. <laughs> and you know how they've got these fantastic kind of like carved spiral kind of spindle things that you grip onto and it was gold Raphael's one so I'm gonna go for Raphael the golden and pink horse that sounds like a very good choice I gotta say <laughs> yeah I like that Raphael he, he sounds sturdy and beautiful <laughs> <laughs> like me and you say <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sturdy, you're beautiful, so yeah. I'm, I'm blushing a bit now. Now you've chosen your horse, the carousel will start spinning upon the truthful answering of this question. Mm. Have you ever been sick in a gum boot? <laughs> Not yet. Give it time. Leave your options open. Yeah, you yeah. never know. Very wise. It's almost optimistic, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've not been, but I might be. You never know. <laughs> Don't rule it out. You know, it could happen. <laughs> so you've answered that question truthfully, Emma. Thank you very much for that. The carousel has now started spinning and it has spun us back to the smash hits of 27th of May, 1982. A snip at 38 pence, uh, which is about £1.40 in today's money. Oh, do you know, that was one of the first things I remembered when I looked at the, the edition online at 38p because i remember thinking that was quite a lot of money <laughs> so emma's picked out this issue for us to have a look at and if you want to read along with us you can do just that thanks to the like punk never happened and smash its remembered website you'll find links to the scans of this issue in the episode show notes along with spotify and youtube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of the hits and you'll also find links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our Twitter and Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So, Emma, let's start with you. Take us back, if you will, through the mists of time, rolling back through the decades to May 1982. A couple of questions to start you off with. How old were you? Where were you living? And what kind of music were you listening to? 
I was 12 and I was living in Sale in South Manchester. And I was listening to some very odd music for a 12 year old. I was into, I was really into, I mean, when I say into, I was really into The Doors. And I was really into Tubular Bells. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that combination. No, I was I know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And okay. occasionally, Tangerine Dream. Oh, you were an unusual one, weren't you, I was Emma? a very strange child. <laughs> I was a very strange child. But I did discover pop, probably I'd say March, really, 1982, because all my mates were starting to get into pop and I was becoming aware yeah. that I wasn't normal, you know. Was, was Tangerine not big on the playground in <laughs> Sale High? <laughs> they really weren't. Right. So I, I remember thinking I've really got to shape up my, my music fan act and I need to become au fait, really, with, with what the, the popular music combos are coming out with at the moment. So I bought Smash Hits and I remember thinking that this feeling when I bought my very first issue of Smash Hits, thinking that I'd become something different, that it had somehow transformed me into a different version of me, that suddenly I was some kind of music aficionado because I had a copy of Smash Hits. (laughs) You would just kind of absorb this stuff and then it would just come out of you and yeah. Yeah, I felt like I belonged. I really did. (laughs) It spoke to me. (laughs) <laughs> so you were saying you were listening at, at the time just before you started buying smash hits to like mm. Tangerine Dream and The Doors and uh, mm. Tubular Bells. What was the influence there? Was was that like a parental influence or elder siblings or did you just discover it for yourself? No, I'm an only child and my mother is a mass, was a massive Elvis fan. Right. And Perry Como occasionally. My dad, my dad was into Ackerbilk and Hooked on Classics. <laughs> you can see I was damaged. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a sort of attempt to resolve inner trauma, I think. And I just sort of discovered this music. I must have heard it on the radio because I must have done heard it on the radio. Mm. And I must have seen Tubular Bells in a record shop somewhere and bought it. I must have done. And I just, I just loved it. And do you know, it's it's only quite recently that I've I've really understood what a massive, deep influence it had on me, that music, hmm. since I started composing, actually, and having to sort of unlearn what Tubular Bells taught me. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, all your tunes go... <laughs> yeah. Then you get somebody introducing all the instruments. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Tubular Bells. Grand piano, yeah, totally. <laughs> so you were listening to records mainly, is that, or were you listening to much stuff on the radio? Yeah, and lots of stuff on the radio. I did I, every every Sunday. I listened to the charts, and I remember thinking how exciting it was when it when we got to like the top twenty. And I used to get really really excited, and I kept a diary. Sadly, I can't find the one from May nineteen eighty two. I can find I can find a bit of the diary from June nineteen eighty two. But that's written in code. Again, I was a strange child. It's written in this very odd phonetic code. Oh, nobody. It wasn't just a letter substitution code. Oh, no. It was phonetic. 
<laughs> can, can you still decode it? Can you remember how to decode it? Or do you need some kind of Rosetta Stone? to? Yeah, I could decode a little bit of it, but it was obviously because I was concerned that my mother was reading my diary. Not that I had anything great to say. Yeah. You know, yeah. read smash hits, went to drink, did my homework. Listen to it. tubular bells again. Listen to tubular yeah. bells. Nobody <laughs> understands me. I hate myself. That kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I, I listed all the, 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 the top 10 hits in my diary and I, I was doing it I mean in this one I've got 1984 listing them religiously so I did I did consume music on the radio and that, you know when you do that thing when you record the top 40 hmm. and, and you'd sort of you'd sort of listen to it back on the bus going to school <laughs> that kind of thing so it was really cassettes records and radio and I did watch Top of the Pops as well. Were you kind of forcing yourself to like pop music at this point or did you did you genuinely like it was a bit because you kind of said there was a bit of peer pressure kind of thing and Yeah, there was I did like some of it, but I didn't buy into all of it at all. I loved Toya for instance. I was a bit cool on Duran Duran although I loved the chauffeur because mm. because again it was something that didn't sound like pop music the chauffeur it's a very different kind of song so I was into some pop music but it was very much on my terms I never liked something because other people liked it Mm. I just wanted to explore what other people liked and then take whatever I wanted to be influenced by or appeal to me from there and I believe we've got something in common our first copy of Smash Hits was the same one wasn't it same one unfortunately it's one we've already covered on the Giddy Carousel of Pop the uh, the Adamant cover but I feel we've got a karmic link, Gav. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And funnily enough, this one we're about to look at, um, I think it was the first one that I got when I started ordering it. Oh. So, again, it, this retains a very special yeah. place in my memory as well. Yeah. It actually had my my address written in the top corner, and I used uh-huh. to, have to go to the news agents and collect it. So, yeah. Fantastic. And why have you chosen this issue in particular, apart from the reason that the Adamant one has already been done? <laughs> Well, this one, I remember looking at the cover of this one and being completely mesmerised by it because Toya's got this incredible makeup. She's got like clouds and the sky around her eyes and little birds that kind of look like the first swallows of summer. And her hair is a kind of orangey pink and cerise. And then it fans out in this kind of bluey white crest at the back of her head and she's got these little birds painted onto her neck and shoulders and it's just a very striking image and I remember thinking when I first saw it how beautiful it was but also thinking my god she's got a lot of gel in her hair how is she going to wash it out <laughs> that's going to take a long time it's to come going to out take a long time a comb's going to be a right state so again <laughs> tells you a lot about me really <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to know that if you ever put any of the posters up on your wall, you know, what did you do with your issue of Smash It's? Because you know, some kids used to cut them up and stick up the posters and some people left them intact. No, they were sacred. They were yeah. sacred. I wouldn't even put a glass of Impto on one and get a glass ring. You know, they were they were pristine and sacred and I kept them in a special box. You know, they were they were relics. so yeah they were they were very special indeed and you know I was always careful you know not to sort of cockle the pages or you know if I read it in the bath (laughs) just to you know not fold any pages or anything or or scribble or write 
Although I did do, I did do the crossword. I remember doing the crossword. So I, I would permit writing on the crossword page, but no other page. So no, th- there was something quite special about my Smash Hits magazine. So thanks for filling us in, Emma, on where you were and what was going on in your life with your code word diary and <laughs> religious objects uh, of Smash Hits. Sai, what about you? Where, where were you? What was going on in your world in 1982? Uh, 90. Well, we've covered this this kind of period before. Uh, I think we did um, one from 82 with Martin Fry on the front uh, with David Hepworth. So uh, yeah, if, if you've not one. listened to yeah, if you've not listened to that one, go go back through you know go, go up or down whichever way your podcast app goes and and have a listen to that one. So yeah, I was uh, let's see. Uh, eight years old, uh, well, just over eight and a half. I mean, it's important at that age that mm. you've got, you know, you've, you've got to mark out the the increments there. And I think the songs from this period are all very memorable to me, and particularly from this this issue of Smash It's because, like you, Emma, recording stuff off the radio, and um, me and my sister did that religiously oh we're getting very religious in this episode <laughs> uh but we'd, we would do that every week uh, my dad had got you know dixon's uh, own brand ghetto blaster type thing <laughs> and uh, we'd sit we'd sit in the the back room as we called it uh, with the top 40 on you know, she'd be doing a homework or or coloring in uh, you know a big poster with a barrel felt tips and i'd, I'd be doing whatever playing with my train set or whatever and we'd take it in turns you know each you know alternate weeks one week she'd record things from the radio next week i'd record things from the radio and then we'd listen to these in the car and it wasn't long after this that we went on holiday Uh, my parents always insisted on going on holiday in turn time so that it wasn't as busy and schools didn't care so much back then. You know, she used to take a letter into the teacher and say, you know, dear Mrs. Whoever, uh, Simon won't be here for two weeks. And they wouldn't bat an eyelid. So one of these tapes was from this period and we listened to it. My sister ruled the tape player in the car and we listened to this tape pretty much the whole two weeks. I mean, kind of rotated with, you know, the, the top 40 songs and then a tape that had uh, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall on one side and his Motown Greatest Hits on the other side. That's pretty much all we listened to the whole two weeks. You know, my, my dad's Glen Campbell tape didn't get a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of these songs I knew very well at the time and still absolutely love them to the, to this day I think the, the more I look at this period of, of pop music I think there's this incredible peak from sort of 78 to 85 uh, this amazing run of music but I think the peak of it is 1982 yeah. as well as like Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet moving through that year we're starting to get the, the new acts coming in who all f- felt part of the same thing like Culture Club yeah. uh, Tears for Fears ABC Wham so it's just such an exciting time for pop music and um, like I say I, I just keep coming back to, to this period and realising that 82 was just, oh, it's, it's the summit of Mount Pop. <laughs> I think you're totally right. And and I think that one of the reasons why I suddenly had this compulsion to get into pop music was because it was so eclectic, was because you couldn't predict the kind of music that was going to be in the charts the next week. You did not know what these amazing bands were going to, release next or who was going to be discovered and it was just it was the beginnings of electronic music when synths were going to rule and then there was this tribal drum thing going on and then you got a bit of funk in there and it was just phenomenal the different the, the way that it was just very broad wasn't it and and anything went anything went it was brilliant yeah there are absolutely no rules then where they're on what 
what could be released and what could be a hit single as well. Yeah, yeah totally. Some quite eccentric stuff coming out, and we'll be covering some of that in today's uh, today's issue. Yes, we will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Gav? What were you up to in uh, May 1982? Uh, well, as you said, months are very important. So I was 12 and two months. I was in, I suppose, just getting towards the end of my first year in secondary school. And I think really then life was just very uncomplicated. It was just uh, going to the local youth club once a week, down to the disco there, playing football after school, spending my pocket money on seven-inch singles from the uh, the bargain bins and the uh, the giddy carousel in the uh, in the news agents, you know, the ex-duke box. Yeah. And just generally, I was a massive Adamant fan, but Adam and the Ants, and then Adamant. So in this month, actually, because it would have just come out not long before, I bought my copy of. Goody Two Shoes, which was the first issue that said Adam and the Ants. Oh. So it wasn't until I read this issue of Smash It's that I realised, oh, it's just Adam and Marco now. Because I thought yeah. they were still a band because that's yeah. what it said well, there. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was just for contractual reasons and then like later pressings <laughs> it said Adam Ant. But, yeah, I thought people were saying, oh, they split up. I was like, no, I bought the single. It's Adam and the Ants, definitely Adam and the Ants. And I was looking at my, uh, my record today, the seven inch of it, and I've scratched with a paperclip into the dead wax, you know, near the centre. Ants, in really bad handwriting, A-N-T-S, <laughs> into it. That's, that's what I was doing when I was 12 and two months. That was my life. What, vandalising your run-out grooves? Yeah, just scratching ants into your run-out grooves. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got to have a pastime. Let's take a look at this issue. So Emma's described the cover beautifully. Uh, we've also got, as well as Toya on the front and that striking picture, uh, it also promises Adam, not Adam Ant, just Adam, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there was only one Adam in 1982, wasn't there? Madness, <laughs> Echo and the Bunnyman, uh, and Duran Duran. And then underneath that, it says Toya. Obviously, we can see Toya. And hit songs by Blondie, Associates, Altered Images, and many more. I just wanted to say about the cover because... When I saw it, I was thinking, I'm sure I've read something about it. And this morning I went to my copy of the autobiography of Mark Ellen, Rockstars Stole My Life, a previous guest on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. And he talked on page 125 of this very issue. He's talking about Dave Hepworth and he says, um, Dave was funny and immensely bright, a great engine of ideas. He knew instinctively what appealed to the teenage viewers of Top of the Pops. A picture of Toya turned up a face painted with seagulls, and her hair a bright orange, vertical explosion, as if she'd been connected to the national grid. The black and white music papers called her a histrionic harpy of no audible talent. <gasps> but Smash It's readers thought she was the liberated sister they'd never had. Dave slapped it on the cover, and it sold 150,000 copies. So what else is inside the magazine? Well, we've got the lyrics, as you'd always expect. The songs covered in this issue are Club Country by The Associates, Brave New World by Toya, Marie Wilson's Baby It's True. Can you guess what the next one is, Si? You be bloody 40. It's you be bloody 40 again. With their, <laughs> they've got a single every issue of Smash It's. This one is Love Is All Is All Right. All right. We've got Pinky Blue Altered Images, Genesis with Paper Late, Cantonese Boy by Japan, Echo and the Bunnymans, The Back of Love, A-Bomb in Water Street by The Jam, which was a request spot, Madness's House of Fun, a Little Piece by Nicole, Scritty Pullet is Faithless, Rhythm of the Jungle by The Quick, Blondie's Island of Lost Souls, and finally, Susan the Banshee's Fireworks. What an incredible run of singles there are there. I mean, not every single one of them is a gem, but there's a high gem quotient there, isn't there? Definitely. There really is. There's a lot of great stuff. 
As promised, there's features on Toya, the Higsons, who aren't mentioned on the cover, but they get a page. Next to that, we've got a half-page advert for Echo and the Bunnerman's new single, The Back of Love. But if we just skip back one page, we find the lyrics to Club Country by The Associates. And I just wanted to kind of mark it. We don't always talk about every song where we see the lyrics, but um, Cy and I were recently on another podcast called Infrequency, and that should be out hopefully by the time this podcast comes out. And we were asked to kind of do a, almost like a desert island discs of 10 songs of whatever kind of genre or movement or style we wanted. And we thought, actually, because the Kitty Carousel is mostly an 80s-based podcast, we'd do something on that kind of theme. And we thought we'll try and choose some songs that were a little bit unusual, maybe overlooked, a bit eccentric, maybe just hadn't got the respect and the due that they deserved at the time. And I'd chosen this in my head, and it was the only one that I'd thought of, and I was still trying to work out what the idea of the show would be. And me and Cy were chatting a month or two before we were due to record it, and I said, I've only got one. I've got Associates Club Country. He's like, I've already chosen that one. I've got that one. <laughs> so we had a fight about it. Cy won because he's, you know, he's a big brute of a man. And, uh, yeah, and that was it. And it's, you know, we waxed lyrical on that podcast about it, but it is just an incredibly... Still, 40 years later, an amazing song, just beautiful, strange. There's, there's something just absolutely magical about it, and I can't put my finger on it. Cy, any, anything you'd like to add to that? I'm sure there is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one that I bought at the time, uh, and it's one that's one on the tape that my sister taped off the radio and that we listened to in, in the car quite a lot. In fact, I can never hear the end of, of Club Country uh, without it immediately segueing into Hungry Like the Wolf by Duran Duran. <laughs> it, it, it just, you know, my sister did the, the pausing absolutely perfectly. And I remember us sat in the car listening to it and being like, whoa, you know, so when you did it, when you did a good, you know, did a good pause, it was something to celebrate. So we did celebrate that one. Um, but yeah, I, I think it kind of dawned on me probably about 10 years ago, I came back to this song. And I just thought, my God, this is so weird. And this, this was a, this was a hit. This was in the charts. And the, the only way I could describe it is it's pop music by aliens. It's been beamed in from another galaxy. It's just there's just so something so odd and, and otherworldly about it. And and it's good to see the lyrics at last, actually, because there's some that I, that I could never fathom that I've been getting wrong for for a long, long time. But yeah, I'm, I'm not going to beat myself up about that. But it's just it's just an amazing, amazing piece of music that even as, as a musician i just cannot fathom out how on earth they did it but emma i, I asked you to kind of you know with, with your musician and, and composing head on to just kind of have a listen to it and bring bring some of that perspective to it and and, and also what, what you think about the song it's so interesting isn't it because i remember when it came out when i was a kid i remember just thinking what's that <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> and I remember finding it quite a confusing song as a kid because it doesn't fit into any neat sort of package. It's sort mm. of com a complete one-off. And just now, sitting here looking at the lyrics, they're incredibly dark. And you're aware when you listen to the song that it is dark. There's something not right happening in the song. But the lyrics, you know, alive and kicking at the country club, we're always sickening at the country club. Your limitations are our every care. Every breath you breathe belongs to someone there. Sad to see that you're suffering, work hard at being a something, and then it repeats that. And it just, 
I mean, in 1982, the 80s hadn't really kicked in, you know, the, the, the greed, the sort of the materialism, the, the sort of me, 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 greed is good kind of thing. But it's almost, it's prefigured somehow in the song. Mm. And musically, I made some notes about this when I was listening to the playlist. And I remember being quite captivated by the beat of it as a kid because it's got quite a striking beat. And then the strings come in, which you don't really expect. And then the singing, which sound, it's a sort of wailing. It's a sort of, it's a cry of anguish. And the modulation then into a minor key turns it suddenly much darker. And it's got a really, really weird structure, this song. I mean, when I listened to it the other day, I remember thinking that it was very cluttered. There were a lot of ideas in there. And I, I was thinking that my composition teacher would rinse me if I <laughs> came up to him with anything like that, because he said, do one idea and do it well. But I think this this is part of the charm of this song, that it, it doesn't bear any sort of consideration for those kind of limitations. It is what it is. And it just goes all over your ears, really. <laughs> and it, it, like you said, it is, it's pop music by aliens, I need to listen to it a few more times, actually, because I don't... Although, I'm not really sure I'd understand it any better if I did. No, I mean, I've sat down with a guitar and just tried to work it out. Yeah. And, you, you know, I've been playing guitar for, for a long, long time. I can normally, you know, muddle my way through pretty complex tunes and stuff and at least find that the basic root notes or yes. something like that. But this one, it's like, what? But just before we came online to record this, I actually found a, a video that I've never seen before by Alan Rankin, who was the guitarist in, in Associates. And he's talking about this song and just about how they wrote it. And it started off with this initial riff that's kind of on a drone. Mm. And that's what becomes the bass line in this song. Because you've listened to the bass line. Dun, 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 and it kind of does that. It stays on, on the one note and then it shifts around a little bit. But then he goes through this run of chords on his guitar. And it's like all the minor chords. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. And I still, I was, I was watching him like, even I'm watching him playing it and he's saying what the chords they are. I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it, which is just brilliant. Yeah. It makes it even more special to me that it's just, it's all there and it's still so elusive. It's the kind of thing that it shouldn't work, but it, it does. But no one can say why it's, you know, lightning bottled in a jar, isn't it? It's yeah. um it's strange. I was in touch with a Facebook friend called Julian Stockton who's been working on, there's a, a Sulk reissue, like a, a three CD 40th anniversary thing that's coming out on July the 15th. And he'd been speaking to Mike Hedges, who produced it, and he said that the basing of the tar lines were both played at half speed mm. and then sped up because, thinking the words of, of Alan Rankin or, or maybe it was um, Billy McKenzie, that said they wanted a sound for the song that wasn't actually possible. That, you know, they kind of wanted to do what Sai said, I think, kind of beam it in from another planet where yeah, yeah. the laws of normal musical physics, if you like, didn't exist. And, you know, it's kind of floating around in another dimension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we can all agree. What, what an amazing song to start the issue off with. <laughs> there we go. I think that's enough on Club Country. We could probably could do a whole episode on Club Country, to be honest, but I guess we've got the rest of the magazine to go through, haven't we, really? Otherwise, the Toya fans will be disappointed. So we get to our cover feature so soon in the issue. We normally save it for a bit later, but now here it is, first feature in the mag. Uh, it's Toya, unsociable, arrogant, selfish, stubborn and jealous. That's the headline there. And uh, it says, that's the real Toya, according to Toya. Dave Rimmer watches her at work. 
So he's joined her on the sixth and last day of a promotional tour to plug her new single, Brand New World, as it says here, taking in some four radio stations a day. And on this particular day, she's been in Birmingham, Luton, Southend, and finishing the day in Reading at Radio 210, where she's been greeted by around 30 fans who've been waiting for her to arrive, which is nothing compared to the 500 that have been waiting for her in Liverpool a few days earlier. And if she'd gone to Radio City in Stanley Street, <laughs> they would have absolutely filled the street down there. They, there would have been no traffic going through. Um, but I think Dave sets out his stall pretty early. He says, I'm no fan. Whatever you think about her music, I'm no fan. It's a fact that Toya is a genius when it comes to promotion. The other week, she appeared on TV no less than four times in Razzmatazz, Pop Quiz, Tales of the Unexpected, and Get Set for Summer. It was accidental, apparently, that they were all screened within days of each other. But it is a reflection of her level of exposure. So I think he's gone in with a bit of an agenda. He really and- has. And then the next sentence, I can't, I can't n- not say this. The way she carefully contrives an image for each project. He's got some beef with her. Hasn't he, this guy? Oh, yeah. I think he, in a way, is trying to show her up and put her down at, at the same time. Yeah, because then later on, he says, what would she say, I wonder, if I said that she struck me as more of an advertising campaign than an artist? And I just wonder how much misogyny there is in this. I think there's a, a big old dollop. <laughs> I would suggest so. Yeah, that, I think so. That she's a really creative, that quite avant-garde, artist with a very clear visual image and a unique sonic palette and this guy just seems like he's jealous yeah i mean i think she was probably seen particularly for um was it i, I want to be free as a bit of a like a pretentious drama school brat kind yeah, of thing totally. uh, because you know she she was you know she'd been in episodes of minder and she'd done a bit of telly and she was doing the music and stuff uh, and i think she was seen as more of an irritant by the, yeah. the male music press. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that bit that you mentioned there, Emma, about being more of an advertising campaign than an artist. And Toya, I mean, Toya stands aground on this really well, I think. But Dave's still kind of determined to bring it down. He really is. Yeah. And as she says, I think that's up to the individual artist. I'm not satisfied with just touring everywhere. My favourite medium of presentation is TV. I think it's selfish for an artist to lock themselves up in little clubs all the time because they're denying other people seeing them. And then it, it comes in with this, this bit of con- condescension. Mm, what I meant was, yeah, exactly. and he does that, so, mm, what I meant, it's not quite what I meant. Yeah. For all the things she does, her biggest talent seems to be self-marketing. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And then later on, when she, she gives this really articulate answer to one of his questions, he says, actually, that wasn't what I meant either. But since we're on the subject, and it really reminds me, if you know on Twitter these days, you get the reply guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you'll be having a conversation with somebody about something that you and the person that you're talking to know about. And then suddenly a reply guy will come in to your notifications and say, actually, I think you're fine. <laughs> you know, those pompous kits. And, and that's what he really seems to be in this article. <laughs> and I found myself as I was reading it, just I felt angry I felt really angry and I remember thinking my god this is what women had to go through then and to some degree still have to go through how much has the world actually changed really 
Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Toya. You know, I've, I've, I've put my hands up now. But, yeah, it really did kind of stick in the throat, yeah. with this piece. I mean, yeah. but there, there is an interesting bit, though, where um, he says, well, I didn't just mean the degree of exposure, but the packaging. And Toya answers, but I do all that, she interrupts me. I won't have a man rule my life. I'm so against men telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. I've been so badly ripped off in the past two years. Now I'm managing myself, and it's hell. I never realized how much managers do, but I'm happy because I can organize everything. You can't just go to a photo session and let these things happen. I'll only do a photo session if someone's there to do clothes, makeup, hair, etc. I would do it myself, but that takes longer. I am terribly organized, but it's me who does that nobody else yeah. and she's really taken control of, she has. of everything that she's doing she has she's owning her own creativity and how that creativity is publicized and why wouldn't she yeah mm. yeah i mean you, you mentioned that that you like toya so do you, i mean do you remember the first time you maybe saw her on top of the pops or heard one of her songs i think i think this tune brave new world i remember really loving the eerie vocals i was also massively into kate bush as well So I've always been really attracted to music by strong, creative women. And I remember thinking even then, even then, how odd it was that in the mix of Brave New World, her voice sits quite far back in the mix. It's really odd. It's like her voice is one of the instruments in the ensemble and it's not pushed forward as a lot of lead vocals are. And I found that quite interesting as a kid. But yeah, I just, I, what I really liked about Toya, and I wasn't a massive Toya fan, but what I really, really appreciated was how brave she was and how she would change the colour of her hair and she would change the makeup that she wore and she would jump around and do her own choreography and, and present herself in such a bold, assertive way. And I remember thinking that she was just a tour de force. Well, like it says in the piece, um, and, you know, she says in the interview, it's it's all very much about her idea, isn't it, and her image. And you never get the feeling with Toya, you know, again, like Sai, I certainly wouldn't say I was particularly a fan of her music, Mm. but I admire the fact that, A, she's very driven, Mm. she's got a very clear idea of how she wants to be presented, and obviously workaholic as well. And she says yeah, in here, exactly. when I have a day off, I've just got to do something with my job. That's the only thing I can think about, really. Every minute of my day is taken up. That's why you get so much exposure of me. It's because I'm available. But it's that's on her terms, and that's what she wants to do. But you don't feel like there's a record company dictating to her to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you can only admire her for that. And this piece is, you know, as we've said, it's it comes across, it's very kind of, feels a bit kind of bitter and, uh, you know, patronising yeah. and negative. It's not a nice... <laughs> It's really not a nice place. And Smash It's generally, uh, certainly I think as it went on, were generally a lot more, I think a, a lot kinder to, to people they were interviewing. Yeah, totally. But at this stage still in, in the development of the magazine, I think there was still a little bit of the kind of the music critic kind of snobbishness or judgments or whatever yeah. that kind of came from the enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds and that older school rock journalism. Later on, as it went through the 80s, it was more just about the eccentricity of the performer and it was just more about having fun with them, but not in a in a way like this. I mean, just the fact that they pulled those quotes, um, that she, uh, you know, they're her words about unsociable, arrogant, selfish, stubborn and jealous, but that's the headline of the piece. And it's one little thing right at the end, you know, and you don't really know the context of it. It's just very snarky. 
It does it? feel a bit of a, not a hatchet job exactly, but yeah, definitely snarky and there's definitely something going on. And yeah. as you say, reading it now, you can't help but think it's probably, <laughs> you know, because of um, some kind of chauvinism on the part of the writer, presumably. Yeah, totally. And I think it's really interesting that at the time he probably came across as really quite clever. Hmm. But now, all these years later, he just looks like a knob. He does. And and how times have changed <laughs> and how we see through it, really, yeah. far better now. Yeah, I mean, you'd never write a piece like this. No. You'd never get away with a piece like never, that these days, would never, you? Never, never, never. And quite right. And she giggles to herself, he ends, remembering the looks on their faces before going back outside to sign more autographs. <laughs> and, you know, it's dripping with this sort of sneer. It's just horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Well, I think looking back, she was clearly an easy target. Yeah, exactly. Because of all her strengths, because she was making herself in such a such a strong artist, you know. But one of my older brothers would take the Mickey out of her because she was short, because she got a lisp, and he'd take the Mickey out of me because I got a lisp and sounds like Toya and, mm. and and stuff like that. So yeah, you can see how she she was an easy target. But now I think we can see that my God, she was so defiant and must have been so strong. Yeah to have done what she did in the face of things like totally. this. Totally, because he says in the article, I ask her how many people work with her. She has two tour managers, she explains, and her guitarist, Joel Bogan, helps with the management. He's the technical businessman and I'm, and I'm the idealist, she says. And she has a publicity person and a radio promotions person and an agent for her acting and a makeup artist and a hairdresser for photo sessions and dot, dot, dot. It's like, my God, this woman is, she's a one-woman economy. She's created all these jobs. And you're still having a go at her. It's like he was implying that she had this massive ego when actually she was just really busy and really successful and doing it well. Turn a couple of pages past Chaz and Dave's advert for the latest album, Mustn't Grumble. (laughs) The lyrics to Brave New World by Toya. And then we get to some curious pictures. And there's one picture in particular here that I just wanted to flag up. So it's a... A five-a-side football tournament organised by Capital Radio in London is at Queen's Park Rangers ground. And there's teams from Madness, The Beat, The Jets, Gillen, Funboy 3 and record producer Mickey Most. The picture I wanted to talk about was Terry Hall from the Funboy 3 is playing football in his moccasins. So he's he's so kind of on brand with the whole Funboy 3 image that he's not even thought, I'll get a pair of trainers on or some footy boots like everyone else. No, playing football in moccasins, that's a brave man right there. I just wanted to point that out. There was nothing more I had to say on that. but Well, the, the photos, the way that they've been cropped, because you don't actually see the, the football in, in them. So Suggs looks like he's doing a silly walk from, from Monty Python. <laughs> and like I say, you know, Terry Hall's just kind of mid-kicking the ball, but you don't see the ball. It's almost like a spot-the-ball competition in Smash. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I never I've, thought of that. There's not a ball yeah. in sight, no. <laughs> there, there isn't. But I, I do like the way that, you know, Suggs has obviously just put a lot of effort into kicking the ball. His leg's right up in the air and his tongue's poking out. That's that's how much effort he's put into that. That's impressive, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, we leave the five aside. And there's you be bloody faulty with Love is All is all Right and Mary Wilson. Ah, oh, did we ever get an issue without them? I think we've had one or two, haven't we, Si, out of 20-odd? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're only ever one page away from UB40. God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) And then we come across what's unusual in Smash It's, I think, uh, a page of interview with a band that didn't ever really have any chart success at all, apart from the indie charts, and that's the Higsons. So they get a page spread. 
It's a very fanzine kind of interview conducted over the phone with Charlie Higson, the lead singer who obviously went on to be in The Fast Show uh, and be a, an author of great repute. And it really just goes through a bit of the history of the band. Um, they talk about the fact that they're about to sign with a major label. And not too long after this, they ended up signing to Two-Tone, which I guess may be why the hits are featuring them. They're trying to get ahead of the curve, but the curve wasn't there. And it was just a flat line, I'm afraid. No chance success for them. Um, they did sell 10,000 copies of the single, I Don't Want to Live with Monkeys, which is you know respectable, if hardly shattering total, as it says in the interview with Pete Silverton. As I mentioned before, really, the Higsons are kind of more of a footnote these days for the fact that Charlie Higson was a member. And he says towards the end, in the long run, I'd like to be a writer rather than a singer. I've still no ambition to be a pop star. Good job, really, wasn't it? <laughs> he says, I can't seem to take it seriously. Um, also, the band featured Terry Edwards, who was later of Gallon Drunk and worked with Nick Cave, PJ Harvey, Tom Waits and many, many more. But yeah, an unusual choice for Smash Hits, I think. Yeah, when he's talking about the phoning him at, his, uh, at the record company's office in, in Norwich, and just the, the way it talks about the band, it all feels a very long way from London. So you, you get this real sense of, you know, these bands that John Peel would play on the show if you've been sent a tape or something like that. So you're really out in the sticks. But also, I'd never heard the Higsons before. So when I heard the song that was a single at the time, Conspiracy, um, I thought, well, yeah. It's a bit like Talking Heads, this. And he does mention uh, Talking Heads in the piece. And I was thinking, yeah, it's a bit like Talking Heads, but if, but if David Byrne was an absurdist comedian, you know? <laughs> I wonder who did steal the bongos, because it's obviously based on true events. Yeah. Good question. We'll never know. But I also like how he's talking about how the chosen name for the band. So uh, Charlie Higson is known as Switch Higson. Yeah for some reason at this point. Uh, he says he has an unusually ordinary downbeat voice that's nicely suited to his wry lyrics. The sense of humour is also shown in their choice of name. We've been months trying to think of a proper name. They all thought I had a funny surname. So we used that. But you must understand that the band's called after my name, not me. We chose it to be anti-hip, as stupid as possible, and not something like Blue Rondo or Spandau Ballet. We never intended it to last as a name, but now we're stuck with it. <laughs> Um, just thought it was interesting it's just like oh we've just got sort of found ourselves doing this oh we're in smash it's now oops <laughs> I think it's kind of notable I guess it was probably one of the last times that they smash it's would do a piece like this on a band with so little exposure you know because you think of everyone else you know that's in it Adamant, Toyek and the Bunnymen you know people that were quite big or on the way to becoming quite big but it was good that they took a chance on on a smaller band you know but yeah a strange choice for the hits, I would say. Moving on, we get to Bits. Sai, tell us what is happening in the world of Bits. Well, lots of things, because that's Bits, isn't it? I mean, the, it? The, the, uh, the, the beating heart of, uh, of Smash Hits. Um, yeah, there's a few few little pieces that, that I shall uh, pick out and highlight. And uh, if there's anything that you would like to discuss, yeah, put your hand up. <laughs> um, so the first little snippet is about uh, Patrice Russian, uh, who was in the charts at that time with Forget-Me-Nots. Uh, it says here, uh, a little interview with her, the English people were either going to love me or hate me, says Patrice Russian. I was either going to read them completely right or completely wrong and as it happens i was right she's referring to forget me nots that's one of the songs that was on the tape in the car that holiday <laughs> um her first uk disco hit that follows a full five years of us of assaulting 
assaulting the American charts. It's so violent. Um, she modestly describes herself as a session musician who sings and as is impressed with English taste, as it seems to be with her. The British respond to uniqueness, genuineness, and people who maintain a high standard. She continues in her soft Los Angeles drawl. A healthy attitude. I wish I could take a little of that back home with me. Oh, she's soft soaping us here, isn't she? She is. <laughs> yeah. And then she says, um, she describes herself as, I'm the girl next door, a regular person, but on stage, I'm the girl next door, but you've entered her home and you're seeing what goes on inside. Well, she's making a cup of tea. Yeah. And what goes on is a, is a lot of activity, a lot of fire and positive energy. <laughs> oh, well done, Patrice. Yeah, she says, I'm not working on people's minds, just their feet. <laughs> oh, it's, it's an amazing tune, but I just thought what an odd view she's got of, of herself as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She just doesn't know kind of where she sits in the world. And there she is, you know. I mean, she, she was an incredible musician. And forget-me-nots, it's just an absolute banger of a tune. So, you know, she'd been doing it a few years by now. And you'd think she'd be a little more sure of herself. But, yeah, I, I feel you know, I feel a little bit sorry for her in a way. Very, very modest, isn't she? Yeah. I feel the imposter syndrome coming off this little interview mm. that she, when she says that I'm a session musician who sings and that that's somehow all she is, it's just, it, I think it's dead sad. I think a lot yeah. of people have trouble perceiving themselves as proper musicians, proper artists. It's like they can't give themselves permission almost. Mm. Sad, really. Yeah, there's no ego at all with Patrice, is there? No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> over the page, well, not over the page, across the page, um, there's a little bit about Human League. A few British bands crack it in a big way in America on their first visit. The Human League, however, continue to carry all before them. Don't You Want Me, at the time of writing, sits at number eight in the singles chart. It got to number one in America. And League Live shows are going down a treat with the Colonials. The Colonials, though. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Included in these sort of shows are three new songs, You're My Baby, Don't You Know That I Want You, could cause a bit of confusion, that one, and a Joe Callis Motown-type composition christened I Can't Get to Sleep at Night, which we understand features Joanne and Susan on a supreme-style oohs and ahs. And uh, he, he says it's likely that one of these new tunes will be the next single, but there are no plans to record anything until September. There's confidence for you. So I went back and just did a little dig and see if I could find out more about these songs. And You're My Baby didn't get any further than some live performances, it would seem. And if you go on YouTube, there is a, uh, a from a bootleg recorded... Well, it says in France, but then there's some reply guy who says they was actually, actually recorded in Milan. I think you'll uh, find, actually. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's not brilliant. It's the first song of the set. Phil's not warmed up yet. He's, he's, a, he's a little bit off pitch, you know. Uh, Don't You Know That I Want You ended up on the album After Dare, so on Hysteria, a couple of years later. And I Can't Get to Sleep at Night, which it, it describes as a Motown-type composition. And I can't find any trace of that, so I'm wondering if that morphed into Mirror Man because it, it absolutely yeah. fits that description. It was. I, I did a bit of digging. I found something because I thought it must be that with the U's and the R's. And I found something on a, on a website. It was an interview with someone, and it said, yeah, it, were, it did become Mirror Man. Wow. So you were right, yeah. Oh, which oh, was that the next single? I don't know. It was a single at some point. Maybe not the next single, but. No, I think, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Good digging there, Gav. Thank you. Flipping the page, and uh, then we get Billy McKenzie's all-time top ten. And his responses <laughs> are quite bizarre. 
to say the least. I mean, you know, we, we were finding uh, Club Country hard to fathom. Well, <laughs> he, he's an enigma to the last. Um, so I'll just run through the songs that he's, that he's picked out, his, his 10 songs, and just read his, his comments. It's, you know, there's only like a few words for each one. So uh, sitting at number one, uh, Hugo Montenegro, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. He makes me feel 10 feet tall. Mr. Blow, grooving with Mr. Blow. Don't ask me such mundane questions when you know I've just bought the wrong size of Levi's. <laughs> what? <laughs> Number three, Billy Holiday, You've Changed, The Face of Tragedy. Now, I understand that one. That's yeah. okay. We're, we're, we're all, all with, you know, we're okay with that one. Number four, Lulu, To Sir With Love, All Heart, All Lulu. Okay. Uh, number five, David Bowie, Golden Years, A Real Man's Song. And I think it's interesting that he's picked that one out because I think that actually gives a, an indication to his vocal style because, you know, yes. Dave, mm. Dave does swoop around a lot yeah. in Golden Years and there's a little falsetto angel in there. And it's very much the style that Billy would go on to sing in. Um, number six, Nancy and Frank Sinatra, something stupid. Candy Floss at the Carnival. I'm sure he means the carousel, but there you yeah. go. <laughs> Number seven, another interesting uh, thing that kind of shows a bit of influence on uh, on Billy's style. Sparks, number one song in heaven. But his comment, Joanna Lumley, contact me as soon as possible. <laughs> I was trying to work that one out. I did not understand that at all. Nope. Number eight, <laughs> number eight the drowning craze, storage case, the three E's, erotic, erogenous, and record, which doesn't <laughs> even appear to be a word, E-record. <laughs> Uh, but they were on the same label uh, as um, as associate situation too. Number nine, big thumbs up for this one. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, the girl from Ipanema. A new tub of Johnson's baby talcum powder. <laughs> I kind of know what it means. And number 10, Andy Williams, can't take my eyes off you, especially when I'm looking at the sun. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. What great choices and just great comments, aren't they? Yeah. It's very <laughs> odd. Don't, don't ask me such mundane questions when you know I've just bought the wrong size of Levi. <laughs> Couple more pages and we get to the singles reviews. Reviewed by David Hepworth in this issue. And straight away, what a single of the week. One of my favourite singles by this band, and they're one of my favourite bands. It's Echo and the Bunnyman, The Back of Love. He says, there was a time when the suggestion that the Bunnyman might actually have a hit would have been greeted with snorts of derision. Nowadays, I'm not so sure. Max sounds like he's fed up of loitering in the backwaters of hipness and brings forth an impassioned vocal that complements the urgent guitars and thundering drums of his colleagues, cutting loose and cutting deep as well. And as I was saying before, when we were looking through the lyrics uh, for this issue, the singles as well. There's just some quality stuff. There's a real goldmine of stuff. Not every single one, but we've got House of Fun by Madness. We've got Temptation by New Order, Altered Images, Pinky Blue, UB40, UB Bloody Forty, of course. Even the <laughs> Nolans crashing down. I love this. <laughs> I never thought in the last issue that we did. Um, I found I was quite partial to the Shaking Stevens one, and in this one, I'm partial to. The, I don't know what's going on. I've been doing. Giddy Carousel too long, maybe, but I think this is a great <laughs> Dave's clearly got a good batch of singles this week, and, and he's, he's having fun reviewing them. But I, I do like his, his review of the Nolans. Why are the Nolans always so agonised? Who is it that's forever standing them up, letting them down and treating them rough? Show me this heel. Has he no feelings at all, the bounder? I've had a recurring dream recently. I go into Marks and Spencers to buy a string vest and I'm surrounded by thousands of Nolans all wearing identical uniforms and asking, can I help you, sir? 
Bernie is, of course, the supervisor. Is this healthy? Bless him. And then interestingly, you see the attitude to Toya earlier on in the magazine bleed through into this review mm. of Toya's Brave New World when he says, what can I say? She seems such a nice girl in italics when she's on the box or talking in these pages. You can't help but admire her energy and utter professionalism. But as soon as she sings, I get this awful feeling that she's somehow uh, exaggerating. All her songs have to be about some grand matter and sung with talent competition gusto. Knock them in the aisles, suck them in the back row of the balcony, grab them and shake them. My first instinct is to duck. That said, this is relatively restrained and should get on fewer nerves than the likes of It's a Mystery. So he's, he's really not a fan, is he? No, it's funny how he sort of makes the same point as Dave Rimmer, you know, that thing about I'm not a fan, but... Yeah. And that's unusual because you, you don't normally get that, particularly in Smash Hits. That, no, you know, they never really say that kind of thing, but not for some all. reason with Toya, they always have to say, I don't like her, but I admire this, that and the other about her. But then I'm just very conscious that I said exactly the same thing earlier on. <laughs> you never, you, there was no snark, though, Gav. No, I, uh, thank you. Thank you, Emma. I hope there was no snark. No, there was certainly no snark intended. No, not at all. But it's just this this sort of, I don't know, there's mm. this veil of of criticism. That, I mean, I know it's, you know, I know he's criticising the, the music on this page, but I don't know, it's just sort of, it's patronising, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's that thing with, Looking back in hindsight, at the time, no one would have batted an eyelid to this, but as now there's there's kind of undertones that you, yeah. you see very clearly. Any of these records that you would have gone out and bought at the time, Emma? Uh, now then, did I buy any? Uh, I did listen quite a lot to House of Fun because a friend of mine mm. was massive into madness and he was older than me. And I used to think that this was a very rude song. Because I understood at 12 that there was something not quite what I would talk to my teachers or my parents about to do with <laughs> the balloons, the balloons and the party, mm. party poppers, all this stuff. And I remember thinking that it was somehow edgy and daring. So I listened to that quite a lot, but I, I'm not sure. I think I might have, might have bought the Susie and the Banshees one. I would definitely not have bought the Nolans. Tell you that in a heartbeat. No, I I certainly wouldn't have done. I would now, but I wouldn't have done then. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely wouldn't have bought Altered Images. Wasn't an Altered Images fan. Why why was that? Was it her voice or the sound of the music? I did find her voice a little sickly sweet for my my palate. It is a bit, um, who's the, uh, it's a bit like Bonnie Langford kind of. Style, isn't it? You know, that kind of little girl. She's kind of thing. To be a little, little girl, and it's just so appealing. And it's, oh, yeah. oh, I couldn't bear it. Bless her. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I quite liked Altered Images. I, and, and, but I'm not one of these guys who's got a thing for Claire Grogan. So I think I'm, you know, in the minority there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's very very pleasant and all that i'm sure she's a very nice lady but yeah i don't i don't go all gooey when when i think about Gre- gregory's girl but i i've i've always liked their music and i've always found that there's when you scratch below the surface of that that kind of you know that, that effervescent front oh, yeah. that top there th- there's actually quite a lot of sadness and darkness in there yeah i could be happy it's a devastating song actually it is 
yeah always been a fan of their music um i've never been a fan of classics nouveau no. <laughs> <laughs> even even at the time i could see that they were late to the futurist party <laughs> I quite like David's review, though. Brian Ferry has a lot to answer for. If it hadn't been for early Roxy music, then half the young singers in the country wouldn't feel free to deliver songs from behind clenched teeth. So I, I've been I've been trying that to see 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 what happens, and, and he's, he's quite right. But but you have to clench your teeth and not move your mouth very much, and then you do do this kind of Brian Ferry, David Bowie, like, and that's that's how it comes out. So and, and you notice that. It, that a lot of bands of that time, you know, they were singing in this sort of style, and that, that's what they're doing. They like, clench your teeth. Were they trying to be a little bit Bowie? Yeah, they were absolutely trying to be, uh, trying Bo- to be like Bowie, a new romantic Bowie yeah. kind of slash fairy. Yeah, they yeah. were basically yeah. racy. They were <laughs> trying to be, they then kind of catch up and be like Bowie and uh, the new romantics, the futurists. Yeah, but, but I mean. I didn't know until today. Classics Nouveau were formed from the ashes of X-ray specs. Uh, you see, again with the X's. Oh, no, again that. with the X's. Maybe that's why mm. there's, there's two X's in Classics Nouveau. Yeah. But why mm. they got Duncan Goodhue as the singer? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, Emma, while, while you're here as well, we we should mention that there's the Gap Band. Oh, I don't know. Do you know, I, I had a little bet with myself then, Gav, that you were going to say this. Go on. Well, it just seems like too good an opportunity to miss. As a former voice of the London Underground, can you say, mind the gap band, please? Of course I can. Brace yourself. Mind the gap band. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. You've made all my dreams come true. (laughs) We'll just end the show right now. Uh, That's it. The carousel stops spinning. That's that's all we wanted you for, Emma. (laughs) You won't be the first man to say that, Simon. No, I'm (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to one of my uh, favourite features in the magazine, Get Smart, which is always very entertaining. And kind of all bases are covered in this one, really. We've got what Martin Fry looks for in a woman. (laughs) And he says... uh, well, ABC Fan in Hull asks that question, and Marty considers tenderness and a big record collection to make a girl that little bit special. Can't fault him for that at all. A question about where you can buy your own Chaz and Dave piano keyboard ties. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, some biographical info is required on China Crisis, and there's also a question about the meaning of the Hindi lyrics in uh, Monsoon's Ever So Lonely. I think my favourite two letters in this are uh, someone asks... Can you tell us where Duran Duran get their slash necked striped T-shirts from, Robert Moore <laughs> in Dagenham? And the reply is, Simon and the boys buy their sailor tops from, in quote marks, good quality yachting shops. <laughs> They're usually a mix of wool and nylon and cost around £23 each. Mega money. Flipping egg. <laughs> yeah, that is serious money. That's probably about 100 quid or more in today's money. You've got to pay for your wool nylon mix. That's what you've got. <laughs> it doesn't come cheaply. It doesn't. really doesn't. <laughs> So there's less expensive cotton versions, however, are widely available in large stores like Topshop, and these sell for around a fiver. So that's more your pocket money kind of price. It's still expensive, but, you know, It is, and I I do wonder how many good quality yachting shops there are in Birmingham. (laughs) Yeah. Where did they, I mean, where did they really get them from? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a good question, I thought of that. Yeah, I mean, Birmingham's as far as you can get, really, from anywhere where a yacht might be, unless you want one on Bullseye. And even then, you know, there wouldn't be a shop just selling tops for it. So, no, more questions than answers. 
There's also a question about uh, a favourite person of mine. Uh, someone asks, is the Graham Fellows, who recently appeared on television in Visiting Day, the same person as Jilted John? And the response is, yes, they are one and the same. Jilted John's finest hour was back in 1978 when his second single, also called Jilted John, spent 12 weeks in the charts. Alas, all his records are now deleted. If you want to investigate further, try the bargain bins. (laughs) So, yeah, nothing else to add there. But obviously we know that Graham Fellows ended up being uh, John Shuttleworth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I love Jilted John's uh, album, True Love Stories, is fantastic. Okay, exciting news time. We've got a new thing to introduce, the Giddy Carousel. Emma, you're very lucky. You're the first person Ooh. to have this. Because obviously Smash Hits was well-known. You know, one of its u- unique selling points was the fact that there were so many lyrics in there. We don't really ever talk much about the lyrics. So I thought we'll do a little lyrics quiz. So I'm going to give you a few couplets from songs that are in this issue. Oh, God. Where the lyrics oh, are. No. So if you want to look at the contents page to give you a bit of a clue, that might help. Oh, I'm on the spot now, Gav. I'll be asking Si as well. It's not not yeah, all the pressure well, on you. Genius. It's guess. just a bit of fun, Emma. It's just a bit of fun. <laughs> I'm terrible with lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and you can play along at home as well. So uh, number one, Cheesy has gone away. Where has he gone today? Oh. Um... Go on, Emma. I'll give you first. First dibs on this one. Cheesy has gone away. Where has he gone today? <laughs> oh, size looking confident oh, here. Oh, my God. You know when you can almost half hear something yeah. from like a million years ago and it's sort of on the on the fringes of your memory? That's, that rings a very, very distant bell. Is it Scrissy Politi? It's not. <sighs> Sorry. Going to have to pass it over to oh. Sai. I'm I'm going to hazard a guess because she sings Where Are You in the song. Uh, Altered Images, Pinky Blue? It is. Pinky Blue, yeah. Well, I knew Simon would get it. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> you might get this one because it's got such a strange opening lyric. I just got back from Africa to the beat of Shook and Jive. Oh, Lord. I just got back from Africa to the beat of Shook and Jive. Is it the rhythm of the jungle? Yay! Well done, it is. It's the quick. The quick. Get I just got back from Africa like it's Tesco's, you know? <laughs> yeah, from Af- which bit? All of Africa. All of it. I say, I did look at that video on the... On, oh, well, I'd listened to it on the Spotify Lord. playlist. I thought it was going to be like a, an imagination type band. You know, I was yeah, expecting, yeah, yeah. you know, a, a Lee John type fruiting around in a loincloth. <laughs> a golden loincloth. Yeah, no, yeah. And then... Watch the video, and it's these pasty white guys, <laughs> one of whom is, well, the singer is trying desperately to be Brian Ferry, just sort of like, and, and, and doing stuff. Yeah, and, and, but he's, he's, got, he's got his sleeves rolled up on, on his jacket, you know, and he's got a skinny tie on and stuff. Very much, you know, sort of late 70s, early 80s Ferry. But the whole video with, with you know, like little close-ups of the band and stuff, it just looked like a, a sketch from Russ Abbott's Madhouse. If there was, you know, <laughs> it's not even that good. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like 1983, and Russ Abbott and his writers, yeah, let's let's you know do do, do a sketch about a band, and they'd be inspired by you know tight fit, the lion sleeps tonight, but they stick a bit of like new romantic in there, so they do like a, a tight fit Duran Duran hybrid, and I think this is what they would have come up with. Yeah. <laughs> It's appalling. It's terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. Anyway, I, I, I take away from your quiz. <laughs> Third lyric. 
Remove the thorn from the lion's claw. Hear my words. Pain no more. Remove the thorn from the lion's claw. Hear my words. Pain no more. What are you going with, Emma? Is that Susie and the Banshees? No. It's not, is it? It's oh, not. I've humiliated myself, Gav. No, not at all. Oh, it's, it's What about you, Si? What do you reckon? It's one of the few lyrics I read in, in the issue. Uh, um, again. It, again. Uh, <laughs> again, Simon. You know. Well, it was all there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Toya, Brave New World. It is, yeah. Oh. It's a brave new world when you remove the thorn from the lion's claw. Pain no more. Uh, two left. Ooh. It's too easy to live in a cold sweat, dripping in pools below. Oh, dear. That's not a very appealing lyric, is it? It's not, is it? Ooh, it's too easy to live in a cold sweat, dripping in pools below. It's a bit unsavoury. Is that Echo and the Bunny Man? It isn't. Not in the Bunny You boys. all right. <laughs> I've got no idea. I'm going to guess this one just because, yeah, there's so many members in UB40. Maybe it did get a bit sweaty being in the band. <laughs> I like your reasoning, Sire. That's very good. But no, it's Genesis Paper Late. Oh, right. God. Getting all sweaty there. Okay, last one. Last one. Take the man in the brown shirt, a burning hatred in his eyes, Ooh. fired by ignorant reaction, fanned by political lies. Who would say such a thing? Take the man in the brown shirt, a burning hatred in his eyes, fired by ignorant reaction, fanned by political lies. Is that the jam? No. <laughs> no, it isn't. I'm, I'm going to let you have another guess, Emma. No, I don't know. D- d- end but... the pain, side. End the pain. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> you're, you're going to get it. I'm just remove the thorn from the lion's claw. Pain no more, side. What do you reckon? It yeah. is? Yeah. Well, I think. I want it to be a little piece by Nicole, but I think it's going to be Faithless by Scritty Politi. No, you're wrong on both of them, I'm afraid. It's oh, UB Bloody 40. Of course. UB Bloody 40. Love is all, is all right. <sighs> okay. Oh, well, that was a successful round. Sai won, though. Well done, everyone. Thank you for playing along with me and for <laughs> indulging me. It's just for fun. I wasn't keeping score. No, it's fine. It's <laughs> fine. But, but thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we get to the feature on Echo and the Bunny Man. Johnny Black, he's gone to visit them. Uh, I think he's in Liverpool. I'm not quite sure, to be honest. Uh, Liverpool's best-known underground exports sell loads of albums, but have yet to score that elusive hit single. Could this be the big one? Now, it's not the first time that we've encountered Echo and the Bunny Man in Smash Hits. They would have featured in, in the magazine previously, but it gives a little bit of background to the band because uh, I think it is clear that momentum's building. They're on the cusp of greater success. And the Back of Love um, did indeed become their first top 20 single. But um, Johnny begins. It's a little known fact that Liverpool is the only city in Britain where every inhabitant has, at one time or another, played in a band with every other inhabitant. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Take Echo and the Bunnymen. Tousletop's boudoir-eyed vocalist Ian Mac McCulloch was previously in the Crucial Three, a short-lived outfit which included Julian Cope of Te- Julian Cope, Julian Cope of Teardrop Explodes and Pete Wiley. Now of Shambeko, say wah. 
Even Echo, the band's drum machine, moonlighted in another band. You can hear him thrashing his diodes on the first Orchestral Maneuvers album, blending perfectly with Winston, who, you may already be aware, is OMD's tape recorder. Now, it's not the most revealing piece, I, I don't think, about the band. Um, like I say, it's mostly just kind of like a recap. You know, here's Echo and Bunnymen to date. Uh, and when it gets to talking about their second LP, Heaven Up Here, released a year ago in May 1981, um, it says the band completed their touring schedule with a short low-budget film shine so hard based around a concert in buxton derbyshire but not far away from where i'm sitting right now and some arty links shot in a hotel les reflects on its brooding air of menace i didn't like it much it was really embarrassing to see myself on film where everything i did looked unnatural it would take three hours to do a three-second shot, and it looked that way too, grumbles Pete. <laughs> <laughs> but he goes on to talk about that they just finished a mini tour of the Scottish Highlands, whose memorable moments come in the frozen wastelands of Wick, a stone's throw from where Scotland abruptly ends at John O'Groats. Mac took an instant dislike to the place and labelled it Huddersfield on Sea. <laughs> The sight, he says, of their bright orange tall van, wipers on, head and hazard lights flashing, was undoubtedly the strangest thing they ever saw. When he asked the only resident punk why he remained in such a godforsaken place, the reply was, because I sign on here. Oh, social comment. (laughs) <laughs> uh, right now the, the third bunny man album is in progress and a new single the back of love has just been released all these chart groups seem to be writing about love in a very surface way says mac and i wanted to think about it as a real emotional thing not some scummy trash the song is direct and powerful and if it's an indication of things to come the album will be their best yet how old were echo and the bunny man at this point in their careers well, looking at the photo, about 12. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. When he says it, it, it's their best yet, <laughs> say, oh <my> God. <laughs> what did they do before this? Because they do look so young in that picture, don't they? They do, yeah. I, I don't know, I guess pretty much very early 20s, right? 20, 21, that kind of age, I think. Yeah, no older than 25. I mean, if you mm. consider Max probably a similar age to, to Julian Cope, maybe maybe a year younger or something like that. So I think he was born in 57 or something. 57, 58. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, probably like 24. Yeah, you know, 20s, yeah, 20 to 25, mm. but not a, not a day older and all looking much younger. But again, that. their music, when I was 12 in 1982, I always thought that, again, like Susie and the Banshees, it was proper music. It was music that older people would be sort of more entitled to listen to because they seem so old and mature and sort of together. It's very odd. And now I see this picture of them, they just they do look so young. But it's interesting you saying about, because um, Emma, you were talking earlier about the doors. Yeah. And obviously like the Bunnymen have got, you know, there's a similar sound and they were big Doors fans. Did that endear you to the Bunnymen at the time or was it still like, oh, I can't really listen to them, they're a bit too old for me? It was a bit, they're a bit too sophisticated for me mm. and and I don't think I can plausibly call myself, I haven't earned the right to call myself a fan. There was a lot of that going on in my head when I was 12, definitely. I think because, I think, I think that came from the fact that I was into such odd music and a lot of my friends thought that was really odd and that I was into music that they'd never heard before I hadn't really listened to before and that I was in this sort of hinterland of starting to like pop music and and sort of being intrigued by all these different genres of music that was emerging from from the 80s at this mm. point and then just like sort of not knowing where I sort of sat 
and music helps you find your identity, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. Certainly did for me. And and I had not found any of my identity yet. So I think I think my relationship with Echo and the Bunnyman really typifies that because at the time, as I say, I didn't think that I could plausibly listen to them. Whereas now I think their music has aged beautifully. Yeah. I think if anything, it sounds better now than it did at the time. I don't know whether it's something about the, the zeitgeist where we're living. There's something about their music which has really become enriched by time, I think. Mm. What's interesting about this as well, it was before the time, because obviously Mac, uh, Ian Mac McCulloch, got a reputation a year or two later, particularly in the weekly music papers, of being Mac the Mouth, and he would always be the one that was interviewed. But here it's very much a band thing, isn't it? Mm. You know, before he had developed into the, the spokesperson for the band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I guess like you often saw it, like, you know, with interviews with the Smiths early on, it was kind of the whole band. And then before long, it was just Morrissey because he gave good quotes and he was, he'd always have lots of stuff to say. And it's the same with, uh, with Ian McCulloch. But I just I just wanted to quickly mention as well, before we move on from Echo and the Bunderman, um, they talk a little bit about the uh, the fact that they wear camouflage. A lot of they wear, they had been wearing camouflage. It talks about the first album, Crocodiles, and it says, although the album was a hit, their singles hardly dented the charts, and the band launched into a seemingly endless touring schedule, creating a mini fashion among their fans for camouflage clothing by wearing camo for all their appearances. And later on, they talk about the fact that it's, it's in the film that uh, Si already mentioned, Shine So Hard. And uh, Pete says, still, it's good that we have that camo period on film because we don't wear it anymore. The move away from camo is explained with laudable honesty, it was falling apart and getting smelly. <laughs> Good reason to change Brilliant. your look, isn't it, that? Brilliant. Bless him. Let's leave them there, looking very young, with his boudoir eyes. What a lovely expression that is. <laughs> we come up to RSVP. Sai, who's in this issue? Well, I can just first of all say, no heavy metal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a good bunch of people here. And I'll just read a, a couple out. I mean, the first letter that this person's gone to, um, gone to some effort. I'm going underground because I never get any letters. I'd like jam fans from all around the world to write to me, whether you're in the city or a strange town, start writing now. But if you're an absolute beginner, just tell me the news of the world. Please send pics if possible, because this is the modern world. So that, that person's put some effort in whereas later on the page you've got from berry you've got two females one boys 13 to 15 must be fit <laughs> and this is, this is Tor and Sara writing from Bury. <laughs> must be fit 13 to 15 must be fit love it <laughs> but you know i'd love to see if these people are still at those addresses and actually what happened to them as a result of writing yeah. smash hits. How amazing would that be? I'm just thinking, like, I think fit, I, I think in Burnt, like, I grew up in Sully Hall, um, and I don't think I'd have known what fit was in that sense. I'd have just thought it meant that you could run a bit and, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I could have written in and gone, yeah, I'm quite fit. I play football twice a week, you know. I wouldn't have been the kind of person they were after, they wouldn't have, would I? <laughs> I loved, um, there's, a few, there's a few there, like Tracy and Sally, the Ant fans, they say two 15-year-old girls, Tracy and Sally, want two good-looking boys, 15 or over, to write to. We like Japan, Adam and the Ants, Visage, and any other futurist music. No mods, punks, heavy metal, or rock and roll fans. Photos, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's Portland Dorset. 
I mean, I was 12, so I, you know, they wouldn't have been happy with me writing to them, but if I saw the word, uh, the words Adam and the Ants, then I would have definitely been interested. One person I think isn't going to get any letters at all is Keith Jones. He says, lonely male. I mean, if any two words are guaranteed to put a female off right into them, I think lonely male <laughs> probably do the trick. Lonely male, 21, into heavy metal, ELO and OMD. Six female pen pals, 20 to 25. Older women. Yeah. yeah. And then his hobbies, again, I don't think he's getting any uh, anyone writing to him for his hobbies. Football, writing poems and receiving letters. Receiving letters, that's not a hobby. That's just something you do, mate. That's not a hobby. <laughs> he's not got the anger of it at all. Come on, girls, don't be shy. Again, that's not going to get anyone writing to you. So sorry, Keith, from Rainhill Hospital. Oh, what? That, there's another story there, isn't there? The really uh, anyway, let's not delve into the that. <laughs> Rainhill Hospital, Prescott, Merseyside. Yeah. Anyone you would have written to, Emma? Anybody I'd have written to? You see, I would probably have taken pity on poor Keith Jones. Lonely <laughs> <laughs> <Lovely laughs> male, 21? Yeah. You were 12. Is, well, exa- well, I wouldn't have written to him at 12. Oh, right. But, you know, <laughs> I, I think if I was, was going to write to anybody when I was 12, I might have, oh, I don't know. This is quite interesting. Hi, I'm a Russian and into many kinds of music. I'm a disc jockey and live near to Moscow. I'd like to write to anyone of any age living anywhere. You see, I read that and alarm bells started going, you know, in this post-U-tree age that we yeah. live in. Yeah. Anyone of any age anywhere. Yeah. All of these are wanting people that were, you know, I was too young to write to at the time. I, mean, I would have probably written to Tracy and Sally. And I would have written to uh, Demos as well. I- I'm almost 17. Fave groups include Human League, OMD, Ultravox and ELO, which for me was a winning combination in 1982. <laughs> But it is where it goes wrong for me. I'd like to hear from girls anywhere in the world, so never mind. (laughs) And then there's this one, which is fantastic. Hello there. My name is Kev. That's short for Kevin. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Kev. I would have never known that until he pointed it out. (laughs) Love that. And I think, yeah, I think Darren's not been paying attention to, to the lyrics of the bands that he likes. He says, I'm a 15-year-old loony with a weird sense of humour, likes Bob Marley, UB40, The Beat, Madness, Crass and Exploited. Dislikes politics. Oh, God. It's, hold on a minute. So you like Crass, but you dislike politics. Okay. Um, futurists and normal sane people. It's like, Darren... Yeah. You've just kind of contradicted yourself with your dislikes there. Like you say, Crass, UB40 were a very political band as well. But Darren, obviously... The Beat. Wasn't, and yeah. The Beat, yeah, and Bob Marley. I mean, yeah, all of them, really. I mean, what what do you think Stand Down Margaret was about? Yeah. <laughs> Margaret, well, just his nan. Yeah. Some, I don't know. Yeah. But what's also striking from this page is that they print the full addresses of the... Terrifying, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It really is. I mean, Angela Walsh from Bristol, a whole address is there. And Alison Lyons and Lynette Neeklin. We know where they live. We literally know where they live. <laughs> it's too much information. And I'm, I'm still very bothered by Keith Jones in, in Rainford Ward, Rainhill Hospital. Very worried about him. What does the Rainford Ward specialise in? <laughs> How long has he been there? Yeah. <laughs> Many questions. I mean, is that literally where he lives? <laughs> Well, it seems to be. I mean, it must be, right? If he's given that as his address for Smash It. I'm going to look up Rainford Ward, Rainhill Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, Keith, we want to know your story. Yeah. This this has got to be a joke because the Rainford Ward was an interim secure unit. Somebody's taking the rise. It was a very large psychiatric hospital complex that was located in Rainhill, formerly Lancashire, but now Merseyside. No, somebody's taking the mic. Oh, do you think someone, yeah, someone I don't like, think, has done it as a joke yeah. for like a mate of theirs called Keith Jones? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, lonely male, 21. Yeah, that makes sense, actually, because <laughs> really cool, I, I thought it was very strange. <laughs> Just that no one's going to write to you. <laughs> Good detective work there, Emma. Thank That's you very much. I'm a policeman's daughter, you see. Oh, that's it, clearly. <laughs> Good attention to detail there. Sorry, I believe you want to talk about the Woolworths advert. Wow. I, I was all set to skip past this. And I thought, hold on, what's going on here? Because first of all, you know, your eyes are drawn to the fact that you can get um, Duran Duran's Rio or the new Squeeze album for four forty nine on, on LP or tape in the Woolworth or Woolco um blitz price uh, it says the best choice of records and tapes at super low prices you can also get altered images associates clash killing joke queen and joan jet for the same price mm. but then i started looking at the photo that it's overlaid on and it's this kind of uh, new romantic it's a new romantic couple mm. you know they've got toya-esque doodlings on their foreheads yes. and a very kind of tousled and teased hair He's in a stripy, um, well, it's, it's a blouse he's wearing, isn't it? I mean, look at those sleeves, that's yeah. a blouse. It's very early Spandau Ballet, that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and she's got a very ballooned sleeved top going on there as well. And they're kind of held in some sort of like, I don't know, is it kind of like a, a ballet pose or is it supposed to be, is it he's holding her and they're in some sort of like dance pose, I think. It, is, it looks like a very miserable powder, de, doesn't it? Is that what it is? It look, yeah, it do, and there's a lot of hair product going on. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's why he's turning his head away from her hair and looking down a bit because he just got a mouthful of hairspray, yeah. probably. Because yeah. her hair is sticking up in such a remarkable fashion that, yeah, I mean, defies gravity. Yeah, an, an absolute trolley full of product there. But then it's the, the little caption after working in the bank all week, it's off to Woolworth for the music and onto the dance floor for a quick one, too. <laughs> and. Yeah, and, and then I just started looking at it a bit more. And I think Blitz Price is, are they referring to the Blitz Club in London? And did mm. they think that they were, you know, drawing these things together in, in a clever way? And none of it works on, on any level, really. But I was just rather captivated with it for a few moments. Yeah, because I've never seen people like that work in a bank. No. No, definitely. Not with that makeup. <laughs> definitely not. Well, maybe that's how, you know, it's not doodlings on the forehead. It's the rubber stamp from, from the <laughs> local branch. That <laughs> <laughs> West Orpington. Yeah. I'm wondering <laughs> if the reason he looks so depressed is, you know, as you were saying before, Emma, about how long it would take to get the gel out. Of it. And he, I bet he's yeah. thinking, oh, it's going to take me all of Sunday to get this out. This was a mistake. Yeah. yeah. You know what hair gel was like in the 80s? It was right sticky, wasn't it? It clogged your comb up. Take ages to get out, three air washes to get it out. So, yeah, yeah. that's my Sunday bugger, isn't it? That's what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, so he's many questions, many questions about who are these people? Where have they come from? What's their intention? Which bank do they work in? Which bank do they work in? We move on <laughs> past the quicks rhythm in the jungle. Just got back from Africa and Scritty Politi's Faithless. And the reason that I would have bought this issue at the time, it's an interview with mm. Adamant. Stand and deliver, question mark. Supply and demand, more like. If people want it, says Adam, then they're going to pay. 
How much for an interview, says Mark Ellen. So Mark, a previous guest on the carousel, has gone to see Adam, recently Son Leont. And uh, let's just start with the, the first paragraph from the interview. He says, I've gone solo because it's a challenge, for God's sake. I'm starting from scratch. My fans can turn around and say, well, we liked Adam and the Ants, but we don't like you. And that's it. So I have to fight and set myself new challenges and keep fighting. What's the point of a fight to the death when you fought them all and beat the best? He doesn't let up, does he? Exactly a year ago, Adam and his aunts were on top of the heap. Twelve months later, despite going it alone, he appears to have absolutely no intention of giving up that seat for anyone. He seems, in fact, to be even more determined to conquer the charts than when we last met in December. I'm tempted to say he's obsessed. Oof. Most of the above quote he delivers with his eyes screwed shut, his fists clenched, his brow furrowed, tilting his chair in a back room of CBS Records to the point where it's just about to fall over backwards. In keeping with this tight-lipped frame of mind, he's dressed, apart from a pair of blue and white leather shoes, entirely in black. A skull and crossbones dangles from his left earlobe, and he attends occasionally to a cup of coffee balanced on his knee, though it must have gone cold by now. I must have challenges, he repeats, opening his eyes. That's the only way I can earn people's respect. Oof. Oh, that's quite a tough opening, that, isn't it? It's, it's not an easy read. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I read this piece. I was concerned about him. I really yeah, was. Yeah, me too. He seems very, very isolated. He yes. admits to being a, a workaholic, but but it seems like he's, he's reached some some sort of mania yeah. with it and that yeah, he's, yeah. he's just heading, just apps. I can see it now. He's just heading towards some kind of burnout. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was just like, oh, mate, this is, you know, this is really distressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see just in that photo of him on the next page after the first page has a full-colour photograph. He doesn't look happy, does he? He really, <laughs> he really doesn't. And he, I remember looking at this picture, being quite shocked to see him without makeup for one of mm. the first times and thinking that he looked like he'd been crying. <laughs> Yeah, there's a real puffiness around the eyes, isn't there? There really is. There is. I mean, maybe he'd just taken his makeup off and, you know, he'd been scrubbing at his eyes for a while, I yeah. don't know. But he does he does look unhappy and he does look as if he's just had a good a good weep. Mm. So Adam and the Ants had split up with release of probably the weakest single, uh, Ant Rap. Yeah. But then he'd come back with Goody Two Shoes, which had gone to number one. But he really, despite the fact that he's he's still back on top of the charts, he comes across um, as very grumpy throughout this and mm. defensive. And as I said, you know, like a real workaholic and incredibly driven, but not at all happy, not enjoying it, and just very prickly all the way through. And Mark Ellen isn't an interviewer that is generally like very tough on people or mm. combative. Mm. But even then, you know, he seems somehow to have fired up Adam, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. And he's, it feels like he's got a lot to prove. And Yeah, I don't think he's just been not necessarily fired up by Mark, but maybe he trusted Mark because... Mm, maybe. Yeah, Mark had gone to see them when we spoke to Mark and we did that episode with him. He'd gone to France to track down the ants with no prior warning to just to try and get an interview with them. And, and Adam and the ants recognised how important Smash It was to them. And it was the only time that, that Adam appeared on, on the cover, that 1981 yeah, issue. Yeah. So I'm wondering if it's if it's more of, you know, Adam sees Mark as somebody that he can trust mm. and that he's opening up with some mm. of this, you know, because he wouldn't really talk to much of the music press anyway because, you know, they, they didn't like him. 
similar attitude that Tyre yeah. was, was met yeah, with yeah. is what Adam and the Ants were met with in, in, in the weeklies. Yeah. So I'm wondering if he's just kind of opening up and, and we'll just get this dark stuff. Because mm. it is dark, isn't it? It really is. He just seems very unhappy in his own skin, really. And it's like he's he's trying to to f- seek validation. And when he Mark Ellen quotes this comment from Nick Haywood about Adamant in the issue before last, in April the 29th, 1982, when Nick Haywood apparently said, if you cater for a, re- for a really young audience, then you die with them. You can be nice, but if you become over nice, you become sickly and boring. And it, I remember thinking, even as a 12-year-old, I wonder if Adamant ever intended that children because it was a lot of children who really loved mm. music, whether that was actually heartbreaking to him, <laughs> that he was really just appealing to kids. And then this this whole notion that you're nice, but maybe you're over nice, is the whole basis behind Goody Two Shoes, mm. which is quite a grumpy, defensive song as well. Yeah. I mean, I think he certainly wanted to be a massive pop star, didn't he? Yeah. But then probably, I mean, maybe after you know, a year and a half at the top, and once the reality had kicked in, then it's just like, no, it's not as much fun as it seemed. And, you know, and he clearly isn't happy here, is he? Yeah, no, he talks a lot about um, Gary Tibbs and Terry Lee Mile that had recently left the Ants, and he's very bitter about them. It says, Ant persons Tibbs and Mile had clearly had enough. The fact that Adam refuses to blame on the heavy workload. I did it, he says, indignant, so mm-hmm. they could do it. That's what they were getting paid for. You can't be namby-pamby about it. If they wanted to reap the benefits, they had to get in there and do the nitty-gritty, and they weren't. He's even less amused at suggestions that the eventual ant split was partly due to a growing disinterest in young audiences. That, he says, wincing, was a rumour spread by somebody who obviously didn't like me. My gigs were open to kids of any age, and as I've always maintained, music has no age limit. If my audience is young, they can grow old with me. If they're old, they can grow young with me. And then, yeah, there's a comment from Nick Haywood. But, yeah, he just (laughs) just very kind of bitter. And, and, you know, the the next album, the album that Goody Two Shoes was on, Friend or Foe, there's a lot of lyrics about about fame. You know, the the next single, Friend or Foe, again, sort of reflects on it. And there's a track on, on the album called Here Comes the Grump. Yeah. Saying like it starts off with it. If you're at number one, the only way is down. Yeah, exactly. You know, so there's a lot of that self-expression because up until this point, he'd have been doing like the art school punk stuff of Dirt Wears White Socks, and then obviously the kind of Native American and the pirate and the highwayman and the Prince Charming and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly, the one thing he was talking about was how crap it is to be a, yeah. a pop star. You know, when everyone wants a bit of you, and you know, and I think it, it just got to that point. Then later on in the interview, Mark Ellen says, and what do you think of Spandau Ballet? And he replies, not a lot. You ask me what I think of them. I don't think of them at all. They're not stylish. They're not fashionable. Style is knowing who you are. And then it, it seems to become too intense, too quickly. Mm. You know, he, he just seems really lost in himself. At this yeah, point. there's not an ounce of humour in any no, of it. It's really very isn't. serious. I was quite surprised actually when I when I reread this interview just how bitter he was. And like Sam said, I was always really worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think his personality perhaps wasn't best suited for being a pop star at that level, yeah. and particularly one with such young fans. Yeah, exactly. You know. Another interesting part of it is the fact that 
Mark asks him about the reasons why his music publisher asks for twice as much or more than twice as much for the lyrics for Adam. And this is, this is quite interesting. He says, this is why you don't always see his latest song words in these pages at the time of the single's release. We don't see, as in Smash It's, don't see why the words to Goody Two Shoes should cost more than twice as much as, say, Town Called Malice. Adam maintains, you get to a certain point where your stuff is worth something, and that's the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, why does a record cost £5? It's not worth £5. It probably costs less than a quid to make, so why are we paying five? Because that's the value of it to the public. If people want it, he insists, then they're going to pay. So you really think your lyrics are worth twice as much as anyone else's? And more, he grins. It's just as if I said to you, do you think Smash It's is worth 38 pence or 10 pence? Mark says, how dare you? It's worth a quid, a copy, maybe two. There you go, then. That's business. And there's none like show business. Of that, we can all be certain. Wow. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? <laughs> there really is a lot going on, yeah. I think that, you know, there's a lot of similar themes to the interview with Toya as well, isn't it? You know, the, the kind of the workaholic side and and just being so driven and very wary of being ripped off as well. Adam mentions it in this and Toya does as well. And it's interesting because they kind of came through the same. They were both in Jubilee together, you know, the Derek Jarman film, and they were yeah. both part of that kind of um they kind of came through punk initially. Kind of went in slightly different directions, but both kind of jaded. I think Adam more so than Toya by this point. But then he'd been through he'd really been through the mill of, of fame by this point, hadn't he? Yeah, totally. He just seems very tired as well. Grumpy and tired needs needs a good kip. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but he says he goes on holiday and, and, and didn't relax. Yeah. So not even a holiday is doing him any good. <laughs> no, because it's a certainly a degree of Adam's drive derives from a ceaseless desire to keep proving himself. And something really sad about that, that whatever he's achieved is never enough. Yeah, because they've been massive in America, massive yeah. in the UK. I mean, massive across the world, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And still, it wasn't enough, and he had to feel it. Felt he had to keep proving himself again and again. And obviously, from this point on, it was kind of ever diminishing returns. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But yeah, it did make me sad reading this again yeah, me too. Because <laughs> I mean, I remember reading at the time and not really thinking of any of this because it was, you know, it was just a bloke talking about adult stuff about being a pop star, and it was just it was adamant, so it was exciting. But yeah. reading it now. Sing, oh yeah, what a shame that yeah, he just he felt like that sad. and he couldn't enjoy it, you know. So we leave Adam Ant stewing in his own juices and uh, move on to the letters page. And uh, there's quite a few lively pieces of correspondence on this one. Let's start off with this from the first column. When I went to a record shop a few weeks ago, I was appalled to see Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast at number one in the album chart. Heavy metal again. Surely, surely the band have better things to sing about than black magic, hell and devils. To add to my disgust, there was that awful front cover and that revelation's rubbish on the back. Please, Iron Maiden, use your talents on something sensible. And that's from Oliver Nudd in Cacaldi. <laughs> that's from Cliff Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a few moany letters. People have got some axes to grind. Somebody having a, a whinge about Haircut 100. What is the world coming to when a band can come crashing into the music scene, have a couple of hits, and totally disrupt Great Britain? I refer, of course, to Haircut 100. Now, calm down, Haircut fans. I'm not going to insult your loved ones. Well, not exactly. They're a good-looking bunch with talent, but personally, I'm sick of the sight of them. Come now, you must admit that the little upstarts are vastly over-publicised. They're plugged on the radio and magazines, not to mention a forthcoming TV series. 
it is so fashionable to like them. Such a nice, clean-cut band. And there's that that phrase, kind of, it, it harks back to what was in the toy, I think, over-publicised. Mm. Yeah. Is this a bit of a fascination, a bit of an obsession at the time? You know, yeah, if bands get popular, they're seen as selling out or something like that. There seems to be something mm. about that, doesn't there? That if, if you market yourself too effectively, mm. then you're somehow less of an artist in some way. It's somehow manufactured and less authentic. There's definitely a thread of that. You get that in that letter. And, and when I read that, it just immediately took me back to that toy piece. Uh, any letters there that either of you would like to highlight and discuss? Just looking at this one what, that says, it makes me gasp. This is from Poison Penelope from Leighton. It makes me gasp to hear people say that Mary Wilson has a great voice. It's unbelievably lacking in the soul that she arrogantly proclaims to be the Neesden Queen of. <laughs> she must have taken a perfectionist course in rotten singing, which, incidentally, Toya must have been a star pupil. <laughs> and again, this Toya hatred, speaking of whom... Did you see her in Tales of the Unexpected? It must have been one of the worst doses of bad acting I've ever endured. Whoever cast her as the beautiful jet set model was being terribly kind and foolish. Now, isn't that interesting that they've got Toya on the front cover? Yeah. And they've chosen to publish that letter. Mm. Because it goes on to have a, have a little pop at um, Kim yeah. Wilde as well. And the letter ends, I don't think much of today's women pop stars. <sighs> Unbelievable. So why does she use her dad's name Wild when her real name is Kim Smith? Ooh. <laughs> Again, a lot to unpack. Yeah, you get the feeling that Penelope wasn't really Penelope. You really no. do. You really <laughs> do. My uh, my favourite letters are both to do with Mark Almond on the next page. Um, one says... Who the hell wants to know, apart from the person who asked the question, that Mark <laughs> Almond stripped on stage and covered his body with cat food? <laughs> if this is what the odd little chap gets up to, that's his affair. But by printing it, you provide us with totally repulsive, unconstructive and, above all, useless information. Surely crude antics <laughs> can be of no interest to anyone. Francis Wood from West Norwood. Very kind of prudish uh, moral high ground being taken in some of the letters in uh, this issue. Um, and my favourite letter is the, the one just underneath, a little picture of Mark Ullman and Simon Le Bon. It says, it's by Simon Le Bon's big toenail from Blackpool. Dear Mark Almond, who the hell do you think you are? God? Well, you're not. Oof. What gives you the right to go around saying you're gay in Simon Le Bon's name? No. It's obvious you're jealous of Simon Le Bon's natural good looks, whereas you have to hide your ugly mug behind layers of eyeliner and mascara and his gorgeous voice, and the fact that he's got a steady girlfriend and you haven't, I suggest you stay away from Blackpool, because if I see you, I'll show you the quick way down Blackpool Tower, brackets, head first. I'll agree with one thing you said, though. You are a pain in the neck. Oh, that's quite a bit triolic, isn't isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And again, how, how times have changed, how attitudes have changed. You know, the anti-gay vibe yeah. in that. Yeah. Wow. It's a, a definite whiff of homophobia there in that letter. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting because I don't remember having that perception at all of smash hits at the time. I just, it never registered. I mean, it was, I was clearly very young, but that was the dominant ideology yeah. of the time, wasn't it? And that was okay. That was just how people were. Yeah. But now, looking back at it, it's, whoa, blimey. Yeah, it was just in tune with the cultural 
values, wasn't it? And uh, like you say, it wouldn't have yeah. stuck out as being unusual or strange. You wouldn't have thought anything about it. But um, yeah, with hindsight, there's a lot of bells ringing. <laughs> so what's it been like revisiting this issue again oh incredible incredible i'm just so struck by how different it seems now to how i perceived it at Hmm. the time i've changed the times have changed attitudes to music have have changed the, the the kind of the political and social norms of the day have massively shifted. I find it really quite interesting to kind of look at that little pocket of time from this perspective Mm. now and just realise how different life was. I mean, even the adverts, you know, cassettes (laughs) and Woolworths and stuff like that, you know, we we just – doesn't happen now, does it? No. (laughs) <laughs> it's like a little thing that's kind of frozen in you know preserving an aspect isn't it yeah. and it's a preserved yeah. in amber and uh, and you can just go back and revisit it yeah at any time but how you perceive it and and the things that it makes you think about will vary depending on your age and yeah, what's happening totally. in culture at the time and yeah. all that kind of stuff yeah yeah but it's, it's yeah it's endlessly fascinating i think yeah but I, yeah, I mean, I love this issue because I think there's just so much absolutely bloody great music in it. Really is so just great tunes and great pop stars, and the fact that you know they had a band like the Higsons in there that were very much an indie band, but they still kind of had a little piece on them. So it just opened up people's worlds to other possibilities as well, totally and that. you know. And I think it, it really tells a story of British music at mm. that time in history just how eclectic it was how diverse it was the music might have been diverse but how socially diverse was it i really Mm. wonder yeah i mean generally look back on smash it's as a positive thing and i think this is a largely positive Mm. issue as it always was but there are you know i think the toya piece and just some of the the attitudes that, that come through, certainly on the letters page as well. Definitely, it kind of yeah, seeing it in a slightly different light, looking looking at this issue. Yeah, uh, and, and I kind of you know I kind of want to say no, no, it's it's, it's nice, really. It, it's, 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 <laughs> Smash it was good, and Smash it was a force for good, and Smash it's it was a huge force. Yeah, for good. And, and it kind of it changed with the times, and I think slightly ahead of the times as the 80s wore on. And I think that was as their staff diversified, as they got more female writers. When you get to like Sylvia Patterson and Miranda Sawyer Mm -hmm. and Sean Patton, when you get those people writing for the mag, that's when when it changes and it becomes, there's an inclusivity that is, I think that, that is there to an extent, but that grows with the magazine as as, mm-hmm. as the eighties goes on. But at this point, I think there is just a little bit of that enemy melody maker sneering men thing going on. Quite blokey, isn't it? At this point, it, it is. It is, and I think it's very easy for us to identify that now, that at yeah. forty years removed in the times that yeah. we live in now, and what we've gone through in in the last few years, totally. and how you know our, our perceptions and, and beliefs and values and attitudes are, are, are changing. So, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting looking back at, at this issue with our 2022 Vantage Point. Yeah, fascinating stuff, eh? 
lads. <laughs> Absolutely. Amazing. So they put a woman on the cover, didn't they? You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, above all else, great music. Yeah, brilliant in, in music. In this issue, and, you know, and, and that's great. So thank you, Emma, very much. Thank for you. For choosing this issue and for coming and riding on the carousel with us. Oh, it's been a hoot. Raphael's been very comfortable. Uh, and thank you to you for listening, dear listeners. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists, which will enable you to have a 3D pop experience as you ride on this, the giddiest of all known carousels. And, of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. And if you want to support us, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, or if you're feeling flush, buy us a coffee, ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod, none of this forward slash business when I'm talking about it, is where, <laughs> is where you can go to do that. And come and say hello to us at giddypoppod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and we'll say hello back. So thanks once again, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. No, you put the phone down. You put the phone down. (laughs) 